Well, good morning. Trust you're doing well. Uh, this morning, just our family was gone last week. We just took, took a, a week of refreshment to see Stephanie. Uh, uh, she was at the Creation Museum and at the, uh, the Ark Encounter. We were able to see her. It was a great time with her. And we continued on to uh, do the, the Billy Graham, I think it was called the Billy Graham, what's it called? The Center. Training Center. They're called the Cove. And uh, it was really a Really a wonderful, wonderful experience that we had and just being a pastor, one of the blessings of being a pastor is that we went for free because it was paid for people like you in the pew, just wanted to bless pastors and uh, not that you did anything, but many people across uh, the world have done things to help us to be refreshed. Al Moeller was wonderful. He's the president of Southern Seminary, uh, in case you don't know that, just a a, a bright, a bright man, and um, just caught a new side of him as he was a little relaxed at our at our time together. Uh, linked up with some pastoral friends, and just had a had a great time. Um, thanks for Ryan, who, who opened up from Galatians three last week. Wherever you are, Ryan, maybe you're gone. Split. Oh, there you are. Okay, and just was good. Was edified by that, and I appreciated that. We're gonna go back into Acts this morning, though. We've been working our way verse by verse through the Book of Acts, so it's. Uh, um, Acts 14 is where we're going to be. You can turn there in your Bibles. If uh, you need a Bible, look in the pew, find the book of Acts, you'll figure it out. I don't know the page number, that's okay. Um, we come to the story of the church at Iconium. Just this very ordinary church. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I have some friends who do different things. You know, of course, I'm a pastor, and, and I just think about uh, some of my friends who are pilots. I have a few friends who are pilots. I don't see them a lot, um, but... But I do see them, and particularly whenever I see a pilot, I like to ask them this question. I say, where have you been this week? Seeing if they, they, you know, they fly all around the world. Where were you this week? And you know what the answer I normally get from my pilot friends? They're like, you know, I can't quite remember where I was this week. Because they fly all around the world. That To fly here and there, it just becomes just so normal and just so happenstance so they they just can't say they can't remember where they were this past week i have some friends in the medical field and uh like brian an interesting question i've asked you before right when you were a nurse in the air i just said uh what's the most interesting thing you've done, seen this week and oftentimes similar like i don't know let me think about it now sometimes you've come up with some really good things for me to, to see the most gruesome things but those in the medical uh um occupation medical field What's the most interesting disease that you've seen this week? And it's kind of like, they see so many things all the time um, that it just becomes normal that they really can't remember. Or, or friends in law enforcement. Uh, I'm not sure if Armin is here or not. Sometimes I, I ask Armin, what's, what's the worst thing you saw this week? Right? And he's kind of like, I don't, you know how Armin does that, right? He goes, <laughs> is that a good Armin imitation? <laughs> yeah. You think so, Eva? And uh, normally he's like, I don't know, I don't know, it's because they see so many different uh, people in trouble with the law that simple interactions don't really stand out so much. Well, today as we spend our time in the book of Acts, we find Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. They reach the town of Iconium, and uh, what's interesting about Iconium is it's really not very interesting. Um, in our text, it's interesting. If you just even look there, you've got your Bibles open, I trust. Acts 14, 1 through 7. Nobody is named. 
There's not a single name in this text. All we hear about is a a great number of people in verse 1. We read in verse 1 also about the Jews and Greeks. And and those go down. We see Gentiles name. But just always just these big people. Even Paul and Barnabas are not even named. They're just called they. Okay, you got to kind of pull them in. Furthermore, in our text, we don't read about anything that anybody said. Like no quotes. No sermons, no exactly, we don't know anything exactly what was said. We know the gospel is preached. We just don't know like the contents of what is said. Which, I mean, think about Acts chapter 13, uh, when Paul was in Antioch. We have in Acts chapter 13 almost a whole sermon that he preached. But nothing of that here. Uh, On top of that, nothing unordinary, nothing out of the ordinary happens in these verses. Everything that happens in these verses we see in the book of Acts. We have seen them, and we will see them more in the future. Um, now, that's, that's not to say, though, that nothing happened. We, we see the, the number of people coming to faith in Iconium is a great number of people that come to faith. We just don't know any of their names. Uh, there's resistance to Paul and Barnabas in the gospel message. I mean, so much so that they feel like they need to leave the city for their own safety, but we just don't know any of the details of the threats on their life that, that came against them. Furthermore, there's lots of instruction that took place. If you look at verse 3, it says they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord as they were teaching the people there in Iconia. We just don't know exactly what was taught. But things happen. You know, it's a little bit like your, your daily, weekly routine, right? You get up, you have breakfast, and then you go about and do your day. Uh, whatever that means. You just, for all of us, it means something different throughout the day, whether it's students or going to school or whether it's us at work or doing whatever. It's moms at home teaching kids or, or, or whatever it is. We're all doing different things. Then we come home for, for the evening, we have our dinner with family and go to bed. And so let me ask you, what'd you have for dinner last night? <clears throat> I'm really trying to think now. Oh, I remember. I remember we had some South, I call it Southwestern <laughs> Chipotle salad how about this what did you do tuesday night you know i can't remember what it oh i was we're going al moeller i was listening to al moeller on tuesday night um we just don't know because it's not that nothing happened i mean last week was filled with activities and 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 you, you did a lot but it's just like nothing there is so remarkable Depending upon what your day, I mean, you went and you built things, you went places, you helped people, you learned things, but nothing out of the ordinary often like stands out. And that's what we see in the city of Iconium. We see great things happening. Evangelism takes place, discipleship takes place, persecution takes place. We just don't know the details. Next week when we go to Lystra, we're going to have some adventures. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. We're, we're going to see uh, Paul and Barnabas. Come into town and, and there's this, this man sitting there who's never used his feet. He couldn't ever walk. And Paul just looked at him and said, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and he began walking. And, and the people of the town are going to see Paul and Barnabas. They're going to say, oh, these people are gods, right? They're gods come down to us. Barnabas, they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Even the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, he, he gathered the oxen and the garlands, want to offer sacrifice to them. And Paul and Barnabas said, no, 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 no. And then they went out in the crowds and they told them, no, turn from these vain things to a living God preaching the gospel to them lots of exciting stuff lots of details lots of unique things it's not every day that paul and barnabas were called gods 
Right? And it's not every day that they had people bowing down to them and worshiping them. But not so in, in Iconium. This text is unlike this. It's not filled with details of some intriguing, exciting stories like um, the story in Lystra will be. But I do believe, though, that this very normalness of this text is the very key that helps open to us. It's a typical generic city that Paul and Barnabas visit on their first missionary journey, and thus the title of my message is Iconium, colon, a typical town, because that's what it was, a typical city on their missionary journey. And, and, and everything that happens in Iconium is like typical. It's like what always happened on all these missionary journeys. Happened in other cities, which we have seen some, and I'll pull out some of those. And it will happen in future cities, which we see as we mark Paul and Barnabas through the first missionary journey. And then Paul will go on the second missionary journey, the third missionary journey, always seeing these, these same themes. And so I just say that there is, there is application for us here this morning. Because we go through life and live out our typical days. We may think that nothing really is happening. God is not really working, right? Because we, we don't see these great things or these great events or look back, all this stuff that, that God is doing. But church family, know that God is working. He's often working in the mundane. We often want to see God working in just great ways, but we miss the ways in which He's working in ways in which we forget. Or, or days have gone by and they just kind of fade into, into memory. You know, one of my favorite biographies I've ever read is the biography of Tom Carson. How many of you heard of Tom Carson before? Okay, Yvonne, Meg, Darren. Okay, don't say anything, Darren. All right, so if you have, don't, don't shout it out. Um, here's a picture. Here's the best picture that I have of him. There's Tom Carson. Does anyone ring a bell at all? Okay, good. One more. He was a pastor. Okay, do you guys know? Okay, do you know where he pastored? If you know Tom Carson, you know where he pastored. Do you know where he pastored? Canada. Does that ring a bell? Here's Tom Carson. He's the father of D.A. Carson. Have you ever heard of D.A. Carson before? Yeah, lots of you. He is one of my favorite um, Christian scholars. Al Mohler's up there, and D.A. Carson is right up there as well. Uh, an amazing way in which they combine deep scholarship with approachable devotion and clarity. Like, like wonderful men. They're both scholars and pastors and lovers of Christ. And, but D.A. Carson is an emeritus professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in uh, Deerfield, right here in Illinois. He's co-founder of the Gospel Coalition, which had huge impact upon the world. He is, as uh, one man described him as, one of the last great Renaissance men in evangelical biblical scholarship. But as great as he was, and as well known as he was, Tom Carson is exactly the opposite. Uh, Tom Carson was hardly known. He was really an ordinary pastor. D.A. Carson wrote his biography, and this is the only way I knew him. Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor, subtitled The Life and Reflections of Tom Carson, by D.A. Carson, his son. I just want to read for you just the first page of this, just to, just to see that he's just an ordinary pastor, kind of like Iconium, it's just his ordinary town, where we don't see a lot of what's happening, we don't know the details, we don't know a lot of the details of, D.A., of Tom Carson's life, but this book brings out a lot of details. But it's just ordinary, like a lot of us. So this is written mostly to pastors, to encourage pastors who are, most of us, ordinary pastors. Some pastors... 
Dean Carson writes, mightily endowed by God are remarkable gifts to the church. They love their people. They handle scripture well. They see many conversions. Their ministries span generations and they understand their culture yet refuse to be domesticated by it. They are theologically robust and personally disciplined. I do not need to provide you with a list of names. You know some of these people and you've been encouraged and challenged by them as I have. Some of them, of course, carry enormous burdens that watching Christians do not readily see. Yet, when we ourselves are not being tempted by the green-eyed monster, we thank God for such Christian leaders from the past and pray for the current ones. Most of us pastors, however, serve in more modest patches. Most pastors will not regularly preach to thousands, let alone tens of thousands. They will not write influential books. They will not supervise large staffs. They will never see more than modest growth. They will plug away at their care for the aged, at their visitation, at their counseling, at their Bible studies and preaching. Some will work with so little support that they will prepare their own bulletins. They cannot possibly discern whether the constraints of their own sphere of service owe more to the specific challenges of a local situation or to their own shortcomings. Once in a while, they will cast a wistful eye on quote-unquote successful ministries. Many of them will attend the conferences sponsored by the reverend masters and come away with a slightly discordant combination of, on the one hand, gratitude and encouragement, and on the other hand, jealousy, feelings of inadequacy and guilt. Let us, most of us, let us be frank, are ordinary pastors And dad was one of them. This little book is a modest attempt to let the voice and ministry of one ordinary pastor be heard for such servants have much to teach us. And that's really what I think Iconium is. It's just an ordinary town. I mean, Tom Carson, as I I read about him, was uh, he maybe was just ordinary, but he labored. He labored well. He labored long. His churches were never big. The only convert of his ministry that was huge and successive, successful was D.A. Carson, his son. He labored faithfully for many years. He, he, he pastored up in Canada when it was really barren up there in Quebec, French-speaking Quebec. And so D.A. Carson speaks fluent French because he was there. So he was a missionary up there. And he labored. His church was never more than probably 30 or 40 or so. He did fold his own bulletins. But he evangelized faithfully. He, he encouraged the believing. He helped and ministered to the hurting. He made hospital visits. He, he, he conducted baptisms and weddings and funerals. He led Bible studies and preached sermons for his, his whole life. His ministry, as I remember, was 40, 50 years, something like that. And I uh, never really saw uh, a great church boom out of that. Now, in uh, the irony of God, just after his ministry was over, Quebec just boomed in revival. And D.A. Carson was poised especially to kind of step in there and did some great work up there. But the purpose of the book is just to share the details. And in some regards, what we see in Acts 14, 1 through 7, are the, are the general details of what happened in Iconium. Now, if someone was there in Iconium and wanted to write a, a detailed account of everything that happened, um, Iconium could have been a book like this, right? just describing in all the detail. But all we have in the providence of God are just the summary of this typical missionary town that they that Paul and Barnabas visited. So let's look at the general things that we learned from Iconium. None of them are, are tremendously specific, but they're all insightful and helpless, helpful. So it says, Acts 14, verse 1. Now, at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles... 
and poison their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now, before we actually look here, we need to visit our maps again. I've been doing this every week. Just I, I figure that as we do this more and more, you'll kind of see and get a general sense of where all this takes place. It's in the Middle East is where Iconium is. Um, and that's where Paul and Barnabas were sent out, sent out from Antioch. Now, if we, we zoom in there, we see Antioch there on the, the northern north of Jerusalem, 100 miles, 200 miles, something like that. I, I can't quite remember, but Antioch is there. Remember, there's that great church and Paul and Barnabas were along in the church and leadership there, and and uh, they were ministering with several others, ministering to the Lord, just fasting and seeking the Lord's will for their life. And the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work that I have called them to do. And so Barnabas and Saul, is called Paul, set on the work. They set on a missions to the world. So they, they walked on foot down to Seleucia, 15 miles to the coastal city right there on the Mediterranean Sea. And from there, they embarked on a ship right across to the island of Cyprus and landed at Salamis, the eastern port right there. And from there, they, they walked along from the east to the west, a journey about 80 miles. And along the route, they were preaching in the synagogues. And as they, they got to the western edge of the island, the city there of Paphos, we see a little bit more details that they really encountered two men. One was name was Bar Jesus, a false Jewish sorcerer, and the other was Sergius Paulus, the proconsul of the city. And Bar Jesus opposed them. Paul pronounced a curse on them. He was blinded. Sergius Paulus believed in the Lord and believed in the teaching what was taking place there and um, became a Christian. And then after that, they left Paphos and sailed north to Perga and Pamphylia. And by the way, John Mark deserted them, went back down south to. Jerusalem, we'll see that in the end of Acts chapter 15. We'll talk about that a little bit more. From best we can tell, Paul and Barnabas spent very little time in Perga of Pamphylia uh, before they, they traveled north, about 100 miles and, and up about 3,600 3, feet up to Antioch in Pisidia, or Pisidian Antioch, which much of Acts chapter 13 is uh, speaks about. Paul and Barnabas come into the synagogue, into the meeting. Paul's sitting in the pew. They asked him, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up, most with his hands, and began to preach. Right then and there, that God, the God of Israel, was faithful to them. Even though Israel was faithless, God was faithful. And then he brought forth a Savior, exactly like he promised in all the Old Testament. Jesus was the one who lived in Jerusalem, who, was, who, who lived a great life. A perfect life. A life about doing good, but he was hated by those who lived there. And those who lived there asked Pilate to have him executed. And they had him executed, hung on a tree. They took him down from the cross and they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And Paul proclaimed there that through faith in Jesus, forgiveness of sins may be found. This Jesus, right? God brought to you Israel. And this Jesus is the way to have your sins forgiven, just by believing in Him. And the gospel that Paul proclaimed is the same gospel that we proclaim. God is a faithful God. But just as Israel's gone astray, we too have gone astray. All of us like sheep have gone astray, and we're sinners in need of God's forgiveness. But God has given us a Savior, Jesus. 
And upon Him, God has laid our burdens and our cares and our sins. We need simply to believe in Him. And, and, and then we get His righteousness and God takes His punishment upon the cross. And we'll experience forgiveness of sins. Not because of anything that we do. We don't, we don't earn it. We don't try to, oh, I've messed up in my life. I need to be better. That's not the gospel message. The gospel message, I've messed up in my life, but I'm believing Jesus has forgiven me of everything, not because I deserve it. That's what grace is. And we don't try to make it up with religious rituals or our own righteousness or, or, or church activity or coming to church or praying so many times a day or giving so much to the church and supporting so many missionaries or reading Christian books or knowing Christian theology. No, it's just by faith in Jesus. It's our righteousness, right? Do you believe this? Do you believe the gospel? That's why we gather here, because we believe this good news about Jesus. And that's what Paul preached. He preached from the pew. Many were excited to hear him the next Sabbath. Acts chapter 13 and verse 42, right? The people begged that these things might be taught them the next Sabbath. And I was pleased to to tell you all that as I preached that two weeks ago, many of you begged that I would come back the next Sunday, which I didn't actually, because I was gone. It was kind of ironic when you asked me that. But I'm back this Sunday, and I hope that your hearts are just as eager and uh, then the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But the, Jew, the Jews, when they saw the crowds, especially the Gentiles, hated what was happening. They were reviling Paul, and they began to resist him, everything he said. And so Paul turned to the, the Gentiles, if you remember that. And, and, and the Jews were so filled with jealousy. Even though there were Gentiles who were believing, then they eventually drove Paul and Barnabas out of the city. Acts chapter 15, verse 31, verse 50, they were driven out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet against them and went to Iconium. And so Paul and Barnabas then arrive in Iconium. Journey took several days, about 90 miles, uh, to Iconium. And the first thing that we see in Iconium is how well the gospel message was received in this typical town. My first point here is reception. We see that in the first verse. Now, at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. This is, this is very typical of what took place throughout all of Acts. Is that we always see Paul and Barnabas first entering into the synagogue. It's where the Jews were gathered. And, and there they took the Old Testament they preached the gospel. Showing how Jesus was the fulfillment of the gospel. We saw that on the island of Cyprus. When Paul and Barnabas had, had traveled across the land... Even there on Cyprus, right? They travel across from Salamis to Paphos. They were preaching in the synagogue of the Jews. And even in Paphos, it was the, the believers, the, the Jewish people who they spoke to first. And when they went up to Antioch, it was in the, the synagogue that they spoke. And we're going to see that again in the future. In, in Acts chapter 17, we're going to see them preach in Thessalonica and in Berea, in the synagogues. And when they arrive in Corinth, they go to the synagogues. And when there's a no, no synagogue in the town, like in Philippi, they just go wherever their people are praying. It's because the gospel is for the Jew first. But we also read here in verse 1 that some of the Greeks believed. It's because the gospel comes to the Jew first and then after the Jew it goes to the Greek. That's what took place in Antioch, right? When the Jews rejected the message, Paul stood up boldly and said, It's necessary the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I, I have made you a light for the Gentiles. You may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when they, like, I think that there was some physical change. Like there in the synagogue, there was probably some separation. Jews in front, maybe Gentiles in back. We're, we're turning to you, Gentiles. 
Right? And when the Gentiles heard the gospel's coming to them, it says in Acts chapter 13, verse 48, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as the Lord appointed to eternal life believed. Just these Jews, these Gentiles then believed it. And something like this must have taken place in Iconium because we read at the end of, of verse 1 that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. And it's probably the Jew first. They rejected, some of them rejected, some accepted, and they went to the Gentiles, and Gentiles were believing, and it was a, a wonderful thing. A, a, a great number. I mean, that's one of the things that makes Acts so encouraging for us, is that the book of Acts is a time of great revival, when many people are coming to the faith. Day of Pentecost, Peter preaches to those in the temple, and 3,000 came to faith in Jesus. And just a few days later, maybe a few weeks later, we don't know exactly the time, that, that number was up to 5,000. And the church was just growing and growing and growing. Acts is a time of, of great revival. And here in Acts, right, we see just the beginning of the spread of the gospel throughout the whole world. I mean, this map here is just going to start. This is just a little bit of what's happening. in, And then we're going to go bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's going to go more and more. And these churches are going to begin multiplying and growing and expanding. I don't have it for you now, but I love a picture that I've seen before about the growth of the New Testament church over a period of time. Like, here's what it looked like in, in AD 70. Here's what it looked like in AD 90. Here's what it looked like 150 and 200 and 300. And it just... Time of explosion in the book of Acts. When you see just the gospel taking root in the lives of so many, many people. In fact, those in Thessalonica... We're so jealous of the impact the gospel is making. When the Jews came into town, they hated, they hated what was coming in. And they went to the proconsul and they said, these men have come. These who are turning the world upside down. Kind of their view of the gospel is coming and turning the world, like flipping it and turning it. Like, like so many people are like being transformed. Trusting in Jesus. Now in our day, right, we may not quite be seeing the reception of the gospel that they saw, our country's hard. And if God would only soften the hearts of our nation, we too would experience this reception among our own people. Well, that may not be our experience. The early church experienced it. And typically, whenever Paul went to spread the gospel, there was great reception there where he was. The, the second point we see in verse 2, not only is there reception, but there's also opposition. We see this often. It's just typical what that took place in Iconium takes place all over the New Testament all over the book of Acts particularly. But, verse 2, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Now, not everyone in Iconium received the gospel, even though verse 1 says the great number of Jews and Greeks believed. That's not all Jews and Greeks believing. But particularly, some were hostile to it, particularly the Jewish people. And it makes sense that it's not, not a lot of Gentile people. It's like, okay, that's your Jewish, that's your religious thing. Okay, you kind of go at it. But for the Jews, they saw what believing in Jesus meant the end of their synagogue, changing their synagogue into a church. They didn't want that. So strong opposition that the Jews had. So much so that they stirred up the Gentiles. Now, again, we have no details of how they did this. In, in Jerusalem, the Jews arrested the apostles and put them into prison after they'd stood before the religious authorities, even beating them. On the way out of prison. In Antioch, the Jews contradicted Paul. They reviled him to his face and drove him out of the district. And they reviled him right to his face in the synagogue. In Thessalonica, the Jews will drag Jason, right, a, a convert, up to the authorities to hold him accountable for the message that Paul was preaching of this other king, Jesus. 
who's against the Roman kings, is what they would say. In Corinth, the Jews would bring Paul before Gallio, the proconsul, seeking his authority to cast him out of the city. I mean, this is, this is really regular. There was opposition in, uh, in the book of Acts, in the first missionary journey. People are often opposed to the gospel. And, and maybe today we see, whereas back then they saw lots of reception, lots of opposition. And today maybe we see little reception and, and lots of opposition. It's kind of just where America is. The only detail we receive what was done in this place was that they poisoned their minds against the brothers. Verse 2. Somehow in some way the Jews went to the Gentiles and spoke against Paul and Barnabas. They felt threatened by the gospel message and they told them that, no, this is poison. You don't want this, right? That gospel thing that they're proclaiming, that's not true. It's of the devil, right? You need to avoid it at all all costs. I mean, what do we put on poison? We put skull and crossbones, right? We put warning, 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 right? Stay away from that gospel is what they were trying to do. See, they say also, if the people of this town believe this message, right, we'll never be the same. The Jews are going to revolt. There's going to be right chaos in the streets. We can't let this happen. This is bad stuff. Sound familiar? Happens today. Christians all across their land, all across their land, trying to persuade people to believe in Jesus. And those on the secular side see Christianity as a threat. Trying to poison the minds of those who are considering believing the gospel. Well, a few years ago, this picture was taken. How many years ago do you think this was? Five? Very good. Close. It was five. 2016. You're exactly right. Prize for you after church. Okay? You're just, you're just smart. I think is what it is. I know that. Yep. Yep. David, you gave it away. There you are. But here's a little video vlog that Yvonne did of visiting the ark, which by the way, we had a chance to do. Uh, in Kentucky, it's well worth any of your visits. Just see the Ark and the Creation Museum there. It's interesting that the Ark and the Creation Museum talk apologetically, and they, they get people in with the Ark and the size of it, and uh, even the creation with that as well. But it really then ultimately comes down to how you can trust God's Word. It's really the message of both of those places. It's really helpful and encouraging, large displays of how God's Word is true and how it's gone forth, and even the Museum of the Bible has a a little display up there right in the ark and it's just all about just the veracity of God's word. Anyway, Avon made this nice vlog style video right showing their visit to the ark, um, showing how large it was, every kind of animal certainly able to fit on the ark. She posted this video on YouTube and no sooner had she posted it than someone commented something to this effect. You've deleted the comment now, but it was something to this, right? Uh, and, and it was like, oh, what a terrible thing. What an awful thing. You're abusing your children, right? That our little children are being indoctrinated with such lies. Something like that, right? Can't remember what it was, but very antagonistic. Like this is just a, this is happy, like this catches the whole spirit of the video. Hey, we're here. Look at this fun thing. Look at all this that we see. And God's word is true. And, and yet the world hates it. Trying to, they see it as we poisoning the minds of our children. But there are many who are trying to poison the minds of the unbelieving against us, like Bill Nye, the science guy, who's always trying to poison the mind of our youth. And I think even the hostility to just to religion, shown in 2017, four years ago, Thatcher, Amy Coney Barrett was in confirmation hearing for the appellate court. And uh, she, of course, is a committed Roman Catholic, right? But she's an upstanding character, a quality woman. At the time of the hearing, Diane Feinstein, liberal senator from uh, California, made the observation, quote-unquote. Many of you guys remember what she said of Amy Coney Barrett? The dogma lies deep in you. Like, 
religion is there and you believe in this Jesus, that is really bad. That's, that's the hostility that, that the world has against any sort of dogma or Christian religion of any way. And more and more that's coming up as we face more and more opposition in our land. That was taking place in Iconium. Now it's interesting that one might think that, that this would cause them to leave. Oh, we got such opposition, let's leave. Look at the first word of verse 3. In the ESV it says, so. New American Standard, I know some of you have the New American Standard. What does it say? First word is, therefore. There, in other words, right, because there was opposition, therefore they remained for a long time. Because of the opposition, because the, the, the Jews were trying to poison the minds of the Gentiles, Paul and Barnabas felt the, felt the need to stay. They needed to show the reality that, that what they were preaching is actually true. And the opposite, actually the Jews were the poison and not the Gentiles. And they stayed there for a long time. Now again, we, we don't have details. Like even when we get to Corinth in Acts chapter 18, I think it's verse 11, we're going to see that uh, they stayed there um, 18 months. I was going to say. Or Paul was in Ephesus for three years. But here there's no time frame. It's just a long time. Several months maybe? Half a year? Nine months? We, we don't exactly know. But they were there a long time. And it is interesting how Iconium gives so little of details. It kind of sweeps over these things. But during this time they were instructing the disciples in the truth. I call this instruction, verse 3. So they remained for a long time. Speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Now again, it's interesting. Nothing is mentioned of the content of their instruction here. All we know is the manner of their instruction. And the manner of their instruction is they spoke boldly. They were standing boldly against those who were resisting the gospel. Correcting the errors of the ways. Right? So being boldly says, no, you're wrong and we're right. No, that's not correct. This is correct. That's what they were saying and, and trying to put forth. When the Jews would try to contradict Paul, they'd say, no, Paul, you're false. Paul would stand up and say, what? No, you're false. That's what boldness is about. And listen, church family, right? <clears throat> we need to stand in this way as well. When you see something in the, the Scriptures, and you know in, heart, in your heart something is true, clear without a doubt, you need to be bold. You know, Von and I recently had a children's play and there's a a good friend of ours a good christian friend of ours who uh, was talking about some controversies come up with uh, a christian youth theater headquarters in chicago and uh, i'm not sure maybe it was three months ago or so that that they mandated their employees or their organization right those who are going to interact and lead with children um, basically uphold orthodox christian morality in other words right the employees those interacting with kids uh, must not be practicing homosexuals. That's essentially what, what it meant. Um, the Boy Scouts bent on that, and it destroyed their organization. CYT, Christian organization, Christian Youth Theater, has stood on that, and they said, uh, no, you just need to have Christian morality. Is really basically what it was. But our good friend who teaches a Christian school in town was saying how terrible decision Christian Youth Theater made, CYT made, criticizing like ancient morality like that should be demanded today this is today 
Right? If you're going to do that, why not you go back into all these things in the Old Testament? It's making a straw man argument. And he was lamenting that our children struggling with sexual identity issues have no one to turn to, no one who's going to sympathize with them. Almost as if this homosexuality is a good thing and you want to go to find a homosexual director that you can come and talk to. Like that's a good thing. Like we should be talking about this with our 10-year-olds. It's too much. I, I was stirred with him. I said... I just want you to know, I'm 100% behind what Christian Youth Theater did. They are Christian Youth Theater, and they're merely holding up right, what has been orthodox, traditional values. This isn't such rocket science. It only makes sense for the leaders not to be homosexual. Well, it was difficult, right? We had some tension after that, but we are good friends, and I think we've made some peace. It's sad to think that he's a teacher in Christian school in town. But he said to be bold, boldly speaking. And there'll be times where you need to speak with boldness as well. So Paul was doing here in Antioch, right, instructing with boldness. Now we can assume in terms of the content that certainly was the Old Testament scripture was the content of their teaching along with the apostolic eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus and how he really was risen from the dead. And Paul's talking about his own experience being blinded there on the road to Damascus. But they're talking about how the fulfillment of the old scripture, like just like they did in Antioch. Remember how many times Paul refers to the scriptures in Antioch in defending the resurrection? That's what they, they were doing. And it's interesting that they weren't the only ones speaking boldly. They weren't the only ones working. God was working it well. Look at verse 3. God was working as well. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. God was bearing witness. Not only were they speaking, but God was also bearing witness. How? By signs and wonders. And one reason why God gives signs and wonders in the apostolic age was to bear witness to the message. Another reason why God might do signs and wonders is to simply be merciful to people. Heal them of diseases. right? Be gracious to the, the poor and the downcast who are crying out to the Lord. But here we see signs and wonders God did by way of bearing witness to the unbelieving. That's what Hebrews 2, verse 3 and 4 says. The gospel, the writer says, was declared at first by the Lord Jesus. It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness. How? By signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. That, that's what we see here and that's what we see throughout Acts. Acts is filled with signs and wonders. Signs and wonders confirming the apostolic word. We've seen that right on the day of Pentecost. When uh, the, the Holy Spirit came down and there's sound of rushing wind, tongues of fire, miraculous speech. That was, that was God attesting to the fact that this is the reality of what was taking place. Peter healed a lame man, demonstrating the power of Jesus. Ananias and Sapphira was struck dead by the word of the apostles when they lied to the Holy Spirit as a demonstration that God was real. On several occasions, an angel came and opened up the prison cell. Giving verification for God's support of the apostles and not the world rulers. A light in a voice appeared to Saul in his conversion. Blinded and in need of sight. And he goes to Aeneas, a disciple, a follower of Christ, who prays for him. At that moment, his eyes are opened. A verification. This is from God. You really did see Jesus on the road. And we saw other, other miracles as well. <clears throat> Ananias <clears throat> healed the paralysis. Dorcas restored to life. Herod struck down with worms when he exalted himself above the Lord. Bar Jesus blinded the command of Paul. And we're going to see many, like next week, I already alluded to it, in Lystra. This uh, crippled man healed, leaping and praising God. In Philippi, demons cast out of a slave girl so that she no longer can tell the future. 
Eutychus raised from the dead. Paul surviving a deadly venomous snake bite. But it's interesting. We've already seen more miracles in Acts than we will see. Like they're, they're, they're trailing down here a little bit. But these signs and wonders that are done in Antioch, it just says in general, signs and wonders are being done. We can only imagine the people being healed, the people walking, the blind people maybe be seeing, the deaf people maybe hearing, the lepers being cleansed. Maybe all these things were taking place. We don't know. We're not told. We're simply told that God's miracles, signs and wonders were bearing witness to God's grace as they were teaching and instructing the people. All right. Fourth, we see division. <clears throat> Verse 4. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, but some with the apostles. Now, we know a bit about division in our nation. We're a nation divided. But what divides our nation today? It's mostly political views. It's mostly issues, right? Whether it's race issues, right? Whether it's COVID issues, right? Whether it's political issues, where it's Trump issues, whatever. We're, we're, we're divided and there's one side or the other. But what divided them in Iconium was not political views. It was the gospel of God's grace. You, you had half the city on the side of God's grace and faith in Jesus. And you had half of the city that hated that and were on the side of everything else. Whether it was Jews keeping the law or the Gentiles, your, your hogwash. Whatever that division was. The gospel came in and divided that city. Because some were on one side and some were on the other. And you can even see that some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. So you got the team Jews and you got team apostles, both sides. But it was the gospel that, that divided that. And if this didn't catch Paul or Barnabas by surprise, didn't catch Jesus by surprise, Jesus prophesied of the split and the division that would come. He said in Matthew 10, verse 34, Do not think I've come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And I'm going to divide. I'm even going to divide families, right? A mother against her daughter and father against son, even, even splitting family, families apart for the sake of the gospel. And some of you people here today know what a divided family over the gospel is like. <clears throat> it's very difficult, but it's the reality, right? When, when the gospel of grace comes, People will believe it or not, and there'll be this divide. Either you'll be with the apostles, you believe and trust in Jesus, experience forgiveness of sins, know the joy of that, or you reject it and try to make it on your own by the law. And in fact, that's, that's how all the world is made up. The world is made up of two classes of people, the saints and the ain'ts, right? Those who believe and those who don't. Jesus said, even in, in Matthew chapter 7, right? Enter by the narrow gate, right? There's one gate of the apostles, right? It's a narrow gate, it's a native Jesus. Everything else, it's the wide gate. He said there are two foundations. Either you build on the foundation of, of the rock, which is Christ, or you build on the foundation of sand, which is your own thoughts. And Jesus was constantly about two kinds of people. There were, there were tares on the one side. There were wheat on the other. So tares on this side, wheat on this side. Or, or you had the sheep on the one side and the goats on the other side. There's just a division and the gospel makes that division. In fact, in my preparation, I was listening to a, a sermon of a pastor of a smaller church in um, not Nevada. Um, I forget what town it is. Even it's on the huh? Nevada. Genoa, Nevada. I didn't know there was a Genoa, Nevada. 
Brian Borgman's name, awesome preacher, great guy. I love his messages. You can listen to it if you want. He, he, he put the whole message. He said it's all about the sword. Basically, he called this message like the sword of the Lord, right? Splitting this town right in two because you got the Jews and the Gentiles. You got the believers and the unbelievers. And just right here is right where you divide. Hebrews 4.12, right? The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides, piercing the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. It's a gospel that will will divide, and the gospel divided that city there. And as a result, we see in verses 5 and 6, persecution come. When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews, that is the unbelieving Gentiles and the unbelieving Jews, with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And so here we see the, the unbelievers, those on the other side of the, the gospel divide, coming to, coming to the decision that said this division is too much, and they have the political power, because the political power is most often with the secularists, and they hated them, and so they teamed up, and so it's a big barrage. And even, I, I love what it says there, that they made an attempt to mistreat them and to stone them. Now, we don't know what that attempt was like, okay? Um, in our day and age, it might be an intimidating phone call, or it might be a drive by your house, or it might be a drive by your house with some shots fired. We don't know what it was, but it was an attempt to mistreat them and stone them. And at that point, they felt they needed to leave. Right? The opposition that came in verse 2 was like just verbal opposition. They can withstand that. But when there was an attempt upon their life, they said, better that we get out of here. And they left. And I just say that this persecution is, is typical in all the book of Acts. We saw it in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5 when the apostles were first preaching the message and the, and the Jewish leaders in control were jealous and they said, no, everyone's going to follow after them. They commanded them to stop teaching in the name of Jesus. And they said, we must obey God rather than man. He said, no, don't. And then they whipped them and scourged them, let them go. And even in Acts chapter 7, it came to the point where Stephen was killed because of this gospel divide, this persecution that came. Paul... He was ravaging the churches, or Saul was, right, before he was converted to Christ. Going door to door, knocking, pulling out the Christians and dividing and and persecuting against them. In Acts chapter 12, we see James beheaded because of the gospel. Peter thrown in prison, going to be beheaded the next day if it were not for an angel who rescued him and took him out of that. We we see here in in Acts 14 and verse 5, this attempt made on their life. Um... We're going to see actual stoning take place in verse 19. Look at chapter 14, verse 19. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. Actual rocks actually hitting his body, striking him down motionless, so that all who looked at him thought he was dead. This persecution was regular in the book of Acts. We see Paul and Barnabas... In jail, in Acts chapter 16, in a Philippian jail. We see uh, in Thessalonica, them being brought out secretly. Uh, we see even in, when they get to Berea, those in Thessalonica, right? They, they, they come and they persuade the crowds. And they got to press on. In, in Acts chapter 18, Paul was, was ready to leave. It's because the persecution was so bad. God said, no, you stay there. I'm going to protect you. And then in Acts 21 and following, Paul's going to be arrested in the temple. And it, just the whole rest of the book of Acts is all about Paul's persecution as a, as a Christian, right? But 
but he deserves to die. The, the Jews want to kill him. Like, like, persecution is just normal in the book of Acts. That's why it's typical here. We don't know exactly the details, but it's typical. And in fact, look at how Paul said it was typical. Look at chapter 14 and verse 22. We're going to see Paul after he goes to Lystra. He's going to, he's going to go next week from Iconium. He's going to go to Lystra. We're going to see that next week. He's going to Derby and then back again, back to Lystra, back to Iconium. And it's on his way back through town, on his way back through Iconium. Listen to what he's going to say, verse 22. So 21, when they preached the gospel of that city, that is Derby, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, which we'll see next week, and to Iconium, which we're looking at this week, and Antioch, which we looked at the weeks before. So they're returning back the same way. And here's what they're doing. They're strengthening the souls of the disciples. They're encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, here it is. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The Christian walk is a walk that should expect persecution. But they experienced in the book of Acts. This is typical. The fact that we are not experiencing it today for a believer in Jesus. Oh, we experienced some, but I'm not sure any of us have been right, stoned or shot at for our Christian faith. Or tried to be killed. Or gone into exile someplace where we need to remain incognito. We've not faced that. And as we don't face this because it's atypical. Because as Paul said in Second uh, Timothy, he said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Second Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You want to live godly in Christ Jesus? Expect persecution to come. Right? It's not this flowery bed of ease like, hey, it's just going to be easy, right? Everything's going to be established. No, it's through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God hard but jesus said right be of good cheer in the world you have tribulation i've overcome the world and finally we see this proclamation that even though they had to leave because of the persecution they went verse six they learned of it and they fled to lystra and to derby cities of lyconia lyconia was the region and to the surrounding country and there they continued to preach the gospel and we don't have any details again of who were they preaching the gospel to or what were they saying. But you know what? Wherever they had opportunity, they would go into the synagogues and they would speak to Jewish people. And when they rejected, they turned to Gentile people. And, and we know certainly of what they said is very similar to what Paul said in Acts chapter 13. Listen, the God of Israel chose Abraham and, and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And even though they resisted him and rebelled against him, God had promised to be faithful to build from Abraham this nation, this people that'd be great. And, and from there is going to come the king from the line of David. And this king has come and his name is Jesus. But the rulers of the city and those who lived in Jerusalem, they should have recognized him because the scriptures are read every Sabbath. Rather than recognizing Jesus, they fulfilled the scriptures by condemning him and putting him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead and he's the one who's raised up and now he's the one through which forgiveness of sins is offered. Something like that, I'm sure. Like Paul was a traveling evangelist. He had, you know, one, two, three, four, four messages in his pocket like traveling evangelists always have. Different than a pastor. got to come up with different things every week. An evangelist just goes and speaks the same thing over and over and over again. And this was probably the same message he preached over and over again. That here's the gospel that we're proclaiming to you. And I'm sure there were some who believed it and some who didn't. And we're going to see in Lystra, we're going to see a, a fruitless ministry next week. As they go out and they preach the gospel there. And some of us know about fruitless ministries, right? You go and you preach the gospel and you speak to people and yet they're hard. 
But yet the gospel is proclaimed. Now, one of the ways that we proclaim the gospel is uh, through the Lord's Supper. So we we had some uh, had some cup and juice, and if you, you're looking to grab one, we're going to transition to the Lord's Supper even uh, just right now. But it is here in the Lord's Supper that we proclaim the gospel. So you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11, which is the, the clearest um, description of, of the Lord's Supper. And he talks about, Paul does, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, about what Jesus did on the night when he was betrayed. He was with his disciples, and they were eating the meal, and he took the bread, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. Eat in remembrance of my body upon the cross. And here's the cup, right? This is the cup of the new covenant of my blood. As you drink this, right, remember that it's my blood that's inaugurating this new covenant so that you don't have to get there by the Mosaic covenant of works of law. But you can get there by faith and trusting in me because I'm the one who's going to bear your sins upon the cross. I'm going to shed my blood for you. Just like animal sacrifices, the blood was shed of the animal for us that we might be forgiven. And that's all pictured in this New Testament command of Jesus to remember the gospel, proclaim the gospel. And so those who eat of this are those who say, yes, I trust the gospel. And then that's what you're saying as you eat this bread and drink this cup. Said, yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I trust this gospel. Yes, I am believing in trust. Now, this doesn't make us holy or righteous. It's merely an opportunity for us, even to proclaim to us, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, as often as you eat this bread and as often as you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And oh, we look for his coming. We long for him to come to make things in this world right. But then Paul says, here's, here's the implication, right? If the Lord's Supper is for believers. It's right, for those who are proclaiming, and we must examine ourselves. Verse 27, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord because they're proclaiming, I'm trusting in Jesus when you're really not. Be guilty of his blood. Let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of, of the cup. So it's a good time for us. Why don't you just bow your heads. I just want you to examine your own souls. Just see where, where you are with the Lord. Are you trusting the Lord? Are you trusting in this great message of grace? It was described here in, in Acts chapter 14. The word of grace. That is the word of, of God's kindness to us. That we have forgiveness not because of works done by us in righteousness. But according to his own mercy. To the washing of regeneration renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. It, it, it's proclaiming that, that we, we trust in that. So if, if that's where you are, and maybe you, you've sinned this week and need to make that right, I just encourage you right now to confess to the Lord, seek to restore things, seek to pledge anew, repent afresh. As Martin Luther said, the whole life is one of repentance. Repent afresh and just say, Christ, I'm trusting in you. And if you're not believing this, then, then don't take the cup of the bread. This isn't for you, it's for us who are believing. But if you are believing, just think of the imagery of everything that represents. As you think about proclaiming the gospel to one another. I've said, I'm trusting in this bread, not this bread, but I'm trusting in the bread of Jesus, His body. I'm trusting in the, the body of Christ. I'm trusting in the blood of His covenant to make me whole and clean. And so, Father, I pray that as we enter this time of... Uh, of worship, just with what you have commanded and told us to do, uh, I pray that we would um, just worship with full hearts, longing to 
to see Christ work in our lives in a, in a great way as we love you because you loved us first. And uh, all we can do is say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply I'm clinging to the cross. And I pray that you'd touch us and be with us now and strengthen us and encourage us. Just confirm in us that it's worthwhile to divide on the right side. That's worthwhile to face persecution and be strong. Because the apostles were right and not the Jews. God, may we be convinced of that ever more so today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.